Welcome to episode 64 and the launch of season 4 of Raw Talk. Hi listeners, this is Ignash and Steph. We're new show hosts for season 4 and are excited to bring you the first episode of the new season. Food. It's a component of everyone's life and as we'll hear from our guests, food is medicine. It nourishes our bodies and often plays a role in our social interactions and activities. But what happens if your relationship with food becomes an experience that is no longer positive? Our team has wanted to do an episode about eating disorders since we released episode 55 on nutrition last season. This episode fell into place when we got the chance to speak to psychiatrist Dr. Alan Kaplan at the Institute of Medical Sciences Summer Undergraduate Research Day. You'll hear from him and several other experts on development, treatment, and research related to eating disorders. Please be advised that the following episode includes conversations about a sensitive topic, and content may be triggering to some individuals. For about 1 million Canadians, eating disorders are part of daily life. In this episode of Raw Talk, we gain a bit of insight into the world of eating disorders from multiple perspectives. But first, when you hear the term eating disorders, what comes to your mind? We took this question to the street to hear what you had to say. first thing that comes to mind is young people like I know enough that it's not an issue that's solely related to young people but that's what comes to mind for me Um, I think there's a lot of pressure now especially on our youth to uh, you know cope with body image cope with stress cope with conformity in ways that a lot of generations haven't before and I'd say I think a lot about like high school I'd say that that in my mind is where it happens I guess most frequently or where you hear about it the most but I know that it's a lifelong sort of illness that people struggle with and and often doesn't get enough dialogue, especially when you think about the, the words that we use and how often we're, we, I don't know, you'll go out to a restaurant or something like that with your friends and you'll eat as much food and feel stuffed and you talk about how fat you feel or something like that and how impactful sometimes those words can be, even on someone who maybe outwardly doesn't appear that way. One of my good friends... Her younger sister has struggled with like an eating disorder for like most of her life now. And yeah, appearance wise, you could have no idea, right? Like you expect in your mind, there's sort of this stereotype that it would be somebody who's like emaciated and very tiny, but that's not necessarily what it is. And also in your mind, you sort of assume it's always females, but um, I think it's actually more common in men than you would think it is. And it's not always about not eating. A lot of it can be just how focused you become on your food and how much that starts to sort of impact and control your life around it. I was wondering if you could describe the different types of eating disorders and also what types you mainly may work with here at the program. So in terms of the different types of eating disorders, these um, all come from the DSM-5, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The DSM-5 came, uh, newest version came out in 2013. So first is anorexia nervosa, um, which is what we primarily treat in the inpatient program. So those that are restricting their intakes of significantly low body weight, they have um, other criteria, are intense fear of gaining weight, and then disturbance in perception of their own body weight and shape. And then there are subtypes of those with the diagnosis, anorexia nervosa. So there's the restricting subtype. 
the restricting type doesn't get engaged in any episodes of binge eating or purging, laxative use. And then there's the binge eating, purging subtype. So that individual will have recurring um, episodes of binge eating uh, or purging, laxative use, over-exercising as a few examples. And then there's bulimia nervosa, so that's binge eating which is characterized by both eating an extremely large amount of food in a discrete period of time, having a sense of lack of control over the amount of food they're eating and feeling like they can't stop. And then there's usually a a compensatory behavior. So that may be in order to prevent weight gain from the binge eating. So that could be in the form of vomiting, misuse of laxatives or diuretics, excessive exercise. And there's certain criteria that in terms of to be sort of diagnosed um, in terms of how frequently you do this. So you need this binge eating would happen at least once a week for three months. Those are kind of the the main diagnoses that we see. Um, We do not treat binge eating disorder here in our clinic. With the recent DSM-5 that Holly mentioned in 2013 came out, there was a little reorganizing of the classifications. And so they grouped eating disorders and feeding behaviors together. And so there's a new category called uh, otherwise specified feeding or eating disorders. You just heard from Tracy Burke and Holly Dickinson, two registered dietitians from Toronto General Hospital's eating disorder program. They outlined the official classification system for eating disorders as they appear in the DSM-5. And while it's important for physicians to understand the nuances of the different disorders, what about those of us who don't necessarily want to memorize the DSM? An eating disorder is really anything that involves extreme emotions, behaviors, rituals, routines around food, weight, body image that's causing your life to be negatively affected. That was Candace Richardson. She's a volunteer and direct client support worker at the National Eating Disorders Information Centre, or NEDIC, a resource hub for Canadians affected by eating disorders. You'll hear more from her and her colleague Ari Maharaj a little bit later. Now that we know what an eating disorder is, we wanted to unpack some common misconceptions surrounding eating disorders, including how they're caused. Each of the three eating disorders is somewhat different in this regard, but for anorexia nervosa, I believe it's virtually impossible to develop anorexia nervosa unless you have some genetic predisposition. Because for just about everybody else, uh, your body's not going to allow you to starve it to the point where your life is at risk. There's something hardwired about anorexic brains that allow an individual to do that without, you know, typically losing control and then beginning eating again. You can lose weight, but it's hard to maintain weight. So anorexics are quite remarkable in the ease with which they lose weight and in the ease with which they lose weight once they regain the weight. They just shed the pounds. It's quite incredible. Dr. Kaplan is a senior clinician scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He spent his career closely studying those with eating disorders, anorexia nervosa in particular. But like most diseases, Dr. Kaplan explains, you're not doomed by your genetics alone. It doesn't mean that if you have a genetic predisposition to anorexia, you're going to get anorexia, right? You have to have an environmental trigger which is true for most illnesses. That, you know, we all carry risk for various illnesses. It could be heart disease, it could be cancer. It doesn't mean we're going to get that illness. There has to be an environmental interaction with the genetic predisposition to actually cause illness. 
bulimia is less genetic than anorexia, but there's still a genetic component. And the environmental factors are greater in bulimia. And uh, similarly for binge eating disorder. What are sort of the environmental stimuli that you see for those two well, for all, all three disorders. Yes. So we know one of the significant risk factors is having early childhood sexual abuse. That increases the risk, uh, and that's about 30, 35% of people who develop eating disorders have a history of that. And that's across all eating disorders. Yes. Uh, I would say it it's stronger for uh, anorexia and bulimia, but it also is there f- for bed, which is binge eating disorder. I mean, that's one environmental risk factor. There are many others. Being in an environment that focuses unnecessarily and unhealthily on weight and shape is probably another environmental risk. Uh, So being a ballet dancer increases your risk for anorexia because of the environment. It doesn't mean it causes it. It's just sort of a trigger for people who might be... Yes, if you're genetically predisposed, you probably shouldn't be involved in competitive gymnastics, let's say, where being thin is actually a requirement to uh, perform. Beyond these factors, particular personality traits have also been associated with the presentation of eating disorders. But which traits are the most commonly linked? Shauna Salman Krakis, a PhD student in the Department of Psychological Clinical Sciences at the University of Toronto, discusses one of the most common personality traits associated with eating disorders. I think one that I look at in my research and that has been extensively looked at as a a risk factor is perfectionism as a personality trait in particular. There is a new wave of literature, or actually it's not new necessarily, but demonstrating that perfectionism is actually multidimensional. So there's a lot of different forms of perfectionism, and something I'm really interested in is learning what dimension of perfectionism is more commonly associated with eating disorders compared to others. Interesting. What what does it mean to have multiple dimensions of perfectionism? So there's many different theories. I think in general, the theories would agree that there are more adaptive sides and more maladaptive sides. Mm -hmm. So in general, again, very various theories that have different ideas of what the dimensions look like. I think in general, the more adaptive side of setting really high goals, striving for those goals. Mm -hmm. And on more the maladaptive side, it's setting extremely high goals. And unfortunately, when those are not met, Perhaps it's not the fault of the goal, it's the fault of the individual. And we see a lot of self-criticism, which can be linked with a host of of negative outcomes. She also comments on comorbidities with eating disorders. I think it would be hard to pinpoint exactly a common comorbidity. What I can say is just like any other mental illness, it's rarely on its own. Mm -hmm. And so we certainly are seeing comorbidities with anxiety and depression. Um, We've all seen OCD and PTSD, a number of comorbidities. It'd be difficult to say specifically. I think everyone's experience is unique. I do think it would be fair to say that it's rarely on its own, Mm -hmm. just like any other mental health diagnosis. There are many common misconceptions about eating disorders. So we asked our guests to help us bust some of these myths that they've encountered in their work. So I think a lot of the times there's a lot of myths and misconceptions around eating disorders. A lot of people think that eating disorders, when somebody presents, they're going to be at a low weight and or, and or using purging, which often we see in the media as self-induced vomiting. And those are kind of the only mental images people have of eating disorders. But really, you can't even tell by looking at somebody if they have an eating disorder or not. The first one that comes to mind, and Candice is going to smile when I say it, is that that health is weight. And that weight is weight's going to be there. And Candice made a face for the listeners who can't see it. Um, where like a lot of people, 
especially those who are in it, think that that number on the scale very much is going to determine what is healthy or unhealthy. And in the media images that we see in the conversations that we have, for some reason, we don't treat weight like we treat height. We kind of all know that we're going to be kind of where our parents are at, and we have, a, we have a range for that, and a lot of it's genetically set. But for some reason with weight, in the language we use, in the conversations we have with friends and family members and in media, we're super judgy with it. We think that we can overly control it when we can't. And there is, we do have a set point, and our weight is going to be in a range, and some of it we can't have control over. But I feel like in society, one of the really big misconceptions is that we think we can control that. And another one that is very problematic and quite stigmatizing for folks who have experienced an eating disorder is that people think it's a choice, like it's a lifestyle choice, and it's not, because I can assure you as somebody who has experienced it and has spoken to many others who have, and I work with these clients, if it was a choice, this wasn't the choice any of us would have made. So I think it can be really stigmatizing for somebody to hear that, especially when they are trying to seek help um, and assistance with this. And I think eating disorders can be confusing to folks because there's this delicate line between where is this behavior that's quote-unquote healthy or we're trying to be healthier versus where is this a mental illness and I think that line can be really fuzzy which I think can also make it hard as a parent or a loved one noticing these behaviors and like what is problematic versus what isn't. Who is the typical patient? I think that's a common misconception. Oftentimes when people think about who gets eating disorders. They think about perhaps women, young women, maybe from an affluent family. And I would say that that stereotypical group is not true any longer. I see a lot of, we see a lot of women in their, in their 30s and 40s. Maybe, you know, they've, they've kind of had disordered eating their whole lives, probably fit criteria for an eating disorder, but never received treatment, kind of put the family first. And now the kids are gone and they're kind of coming back to address their eating disorder or they're realizing like that it's a problem that needs to be addressed. So I think that's part of what I've seen in my in my career is a bit of a shift towards women in middle age kind of coming for treatment. We've also seen probably a bit of an increase in in men. It's still very infrequent I would say for us but we might have a man in our program five times a year. So the population's shifting a little bit, yeah. And, and it really knows no boundaries in terms of socioeconomic status or ethnicity. One that comes to mind first is that eating disorders do not just affect women. I think we're seeing eating disorders across the gender spectrum, and we are seeing it in across age spectrums, across different cultures. So it's not, I think there is this misconception that it only affects women, and that is certainly not true. I think another big misconception is that you can tell someone has an eating disorder just by looking at them, and that is certainly not the case. We know that individuals across the body size and weight spectrum can experience an eating disorder, so that's certainly one we want to dispel right away. And I guess finally, another big one that unfortunately we still see on news feeds and in the media that we're trying to dispel is that eating disorders are a choice. We do know that it is certainly not a choice, that these are severe mental illnesses. And I think that is probably one of the most important misconceptions that we need to dispel as well. So maybe we can shift now to, Candice, your own lived experience and what you're comfortable sharing with us. For sure. So I think The general disclaimer, like, of course, this is my own experience and it's not in any way indicative of what others might experience. Like, I am a 
relatively able-bodied, privileged, to a certain capacity, white, young person. So my experience isn't going to look like what a lot of other folks who have to navigate our system is. But for me, it started from a really young age. I was always very, very anxious and I had stomach problems that never really went away. And all of, we did the testing for like lactose intolerance and all of that jazz. I was tested for everything and nothing really came back conclusive. And it only got worse as I got older. And so back then, ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, that didn't exist back then, but that is probably what I would have been diagnosed with at that point. But things kind of perpetually got worse. And then when I was in seventh or eighth grade, and I grew up in competitive dance my whole life, so that was a stressful environment. There was a lot of exercise involved. It was very regimented. And so the weight kind of started coming off because I was doing that and I was having the stomach ache, so I wasn't eating. And it was kind of this perfect storm of issues. I was already very anxious and perfectionistic. And then people were noticing that I was losing weight and I was receiving praise for it. And then one thing led to another and I ended up in not the greatest place. So from my, what I thought had happened was that my pediatrician became concerned. I was referred to a psychologist. Um, and luckily, my parents were able to pay out of pocket until I was able to access provincially funded treatment through a hospital system. Um, but there got to a point when I was seeing the psychologist that she just kind of like looked at me and my mom was like, this is way beyond my capacity. I, I can't help you. Like it would not be helpful anymore. Like this is medically too complicated. And so then I was kind of left in this weird transition between I'm too sick for one place, but not sick enough. I'm on a six month wait list mm -hmm. for our hospital based programs. And so after the fact, I found out like years and years later that my mom was actually the one who was noticing all these things and was like, there's a problem. My pediatrician wasn't taking it as seriously as maybe she could have. And my mom had written essays and was like, please, we need help. And so that was what then finally when my medical signs and my blood pressure was all messed up, my heart rate, things that were very problematic and shouldn't be happening in a child was finally when the referral went in. But at that point, it was already kind of late in the game. Um, so I was when I went to my first assessment, it was for family based therapy. So my mom, my dad, my sister and the whole we saw everybody. We saw the dietitian, nutritionist, social worker, physician, psychiatrist. It was like I honestly can't even remember that day. And after the assessment, they were like, oh, you really should be at like a higher level of care to do like day patient or whatever, which would mean I would have to not be in school and all mm -hmm. of that. And for me, that was like catastrophic. And my parents were very like, no, we're going to do this at home. Like we like we're going to show up. We're going to be here for appointments. We can do this. But it just it can be really frustrating as somebody who's trying to navigate the system that at the point when I was referred, which was like nine months ago, I would have been fine doing outpatient treatment at that mm -hmm. point but I didn't actually get seen until nine months later which now you're telling me I should be an inpatient or a day patient I'm too sick to get the service that I was mm -hmm. referred to so that was a bit frustrating but luckily we were able to manage it on an outpatient basis and then so I was in treatment for heavily for a year and then they kind of like wean you off like you see people less frequently all of that sort of jazz. And so by the time I was out of high school, I was mostly done with treatment. But obviously, it's not something that just goes away. And I think mm -hmm. that's another very common misconception around eating disorders. And quite often, when we see people who are in the initial stages of recovery or who maybe did treatment, and a lot of the times, the way that treatment is structured is that 
if you have a restrictive type of eating disorder, again, eating disorders don't always involve weight loss, but when they do, you can't be in therapy if your brain's not functioning. Like <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy ain't gonna work if you're you're not cognitively right. there. So you kind of have to focus on the weight gain first to they call it weight restoration medically, so that you can actually show up emotionally and mm -hmm. work on the stuff that so was steps. causing this. But the problem is, quite often when you're trying to function as, in a society, as all of these things are happening in your personal life, that you're maybe trying to hide because you're not comfortable mm -hmm. disclosing this to everybody as it's happening. People see you and you're potentially at a very low weight and now they see you and you quote unquote look normal. And like realistically, none of the emotional work has even began at that point. That now you have all the problems you had before and you're in a body that's drastically different than you were in a few months ago. And people are like, oh, you look great, and thinking everything's are fine. So that's probably the hardest point, mm -hmm. I would say, because you, quote unquote, look fine, and you're no longer occupying this sick role that everybody's so concerned about because of your physical being. But emotionally, you're probably worse off than you maybe had been. Mm -hmm. And then people start treating you like you're fine at that point. So that's kind of like a very murky water mm -hmm. to navigate. I, I don't blame people for thinking that way because, of course, when something is physical like that, yeah. you think like, oh, but you physically look better, so you are better. But that's the complexity of an eating disorder because it's a mental illness, but it very yeah. quickly can become physical, and the physical effects of it are really just a side effect. Yeah. Do you think the role that stigma plays in in just the manifestation of uh, eating disorders like does has that changed over time and like how did it affect you personally I think for me and I think too like this is something I think about a lot because I was like a kid when this all started happening so I think I wasn't fully aware of the role that stigma was playing but I think talking about it with my parents after like now that I'm in this like quasi practitioner sort of role not quite yet but I think for them too it was hard to convey to others what was going on without them being judgmental about it and to really a lot of the times people don't have a full understanding of what an eating disorder involves Dinner time in normal households is probably pretty normal. You sit around a table. Dinner time in a household with somebody, a child with an eating disorder, is like going to war. It is not, I, I can't even do justice to the amount of stuff that goes on and the emotions and the fighting. And, and it's really, I say this to parents on the helpline a lot. I'm like, this isn't your child. This is the eating disorder that's talking. And like, you know the difference between your child and the eating disorder. And it's not you against your child right now. It's both of you against the eating disorder. As Candace described, the management of eating disorders is analogous to going to war. And there's a whole host of soldiers fighting alongside those affected to support them and their family members. We asked Dr. Kaplan how he got started in the field of eating disorders research. You obviously focus on eating disorders and you have kind of an interesting story of how you became interested in eating disorders um, where you had a specific patient encounter during your residency, I believe. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you became interested and what the eating disorder uh, research landscape was like when you were in residency? Sure. So I, I started, I graduated U of T Medical School in 1978 and started my residency in internal medicine at the time. And one of my first rotations was on a gastrointestinal unit where a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease and other disorders were being intravenously nutritionally rehabilitated. There was one patient 
on that unit who didn't have inflammatory bowel disease, but nobody seemed to know what was wrong with her. And I happened to go by her room one night when I was on call and heard her distress. She happened to have been vomiting, and I went in to see if she was okay, and she proceeded to tell me her symptoms and then more of herself and her life story. And I surmised, even though I hadn't ever seen a patient with anorexia nervosa, that this was what she had. That year that I was in internal medicine, she happened to be the chief of medicine's patient, and became clear to me he wasn't sure what to do with her and she primarily had a psychiatric illness and so his office would call me every few months maybe once every six weeks she would have a visit with him have an appointment and he would call me down to talk to her I didn't realize it at the time retrospectively I was establishing some form of psychotherapeutic relationship with her that she began to trust me and began to reveal aspects of her history that you know kind of explain how she came to have such a serious illness. So, I mean, that was an interesting experience for me. Not that I knew what I was doing at the time, but, you know, it pointed out that the non-specific aspects of being an empathic physician, listening carefully, being non-judgmental, being open to hear what people have to say, are very important in, in establishing trust. Dr. Kaplan's experience led him down the street to an eating disorders unit that's now part of CAMH, where one of the world experts in eating disorders convinced him to switch from internal medicine to psychiatry. The rest is history. The psychotherapeutic relationship he spoke about is an integral part of managing patient care. Dietitians Tracy and Holly also acknowledged the importance of incorporating the psychotherapeutic component into their practice at the eating disorders program at Toronto General Hospital. In fact, both continued their education to become registered psychotherapists to complement their role as dietitians. They shared their insights about the program and the steps someone may experience once receiving a referral. Here at Toronto General Hospital, we have intensive. We have an intensive inpatient treatment program. We have an intensive day treatment program. We have the relapse prevention program that we were mentioning, and then we have a medac program. So, generally, what happens when you look at the patient journey? Someone is referred by their family doctor to the program, and then they have a consultation with a psychologist who will more thoroughly um, look at their diagnosis and decide what the best kind of treatment approach would be. And then they would, depending on, on that outcome, the patient would either go directly into the inpatient program or directly into the day treatment program. And so in the inpatient program, we have 10 beds. Really, that program's meant for individuals who are a little more medically unstable, and they kind of in the early stages of normalizing their eating, they might need a little more medical surveillance um, to ensure they don't go into refeeding syndrome or have any other complications associated with the refeeding process. Generally, the length of stay that they're looking at in, in, in the inpatient program would be about six to eight weeks. And then they would come to the intensive day treatment program and they would likely be there for probably another six to 10 weeks. And then once they've completed that, then they would go into the relapse prevention program, which is individual CBT for relapse prevention, where you would meet with a therapist for 50 minutes, initially twice a week, then moving to once a week for 16 sessions. And then they're discharged back to the community. When Tracy mentions CBT, she is referring to cognitive behavioral therapy. 
It is a goal-oriented therapy that helps people to develop skills and strategies for becoming and staying mentally and physically healthy. For more on this topic, check out Raw Talk episode 47 on graduate student mental health. Tracy and Holly go on to share the nutrition aspect of the treatment program. They preface and reiterate here that treatment is a team approach, including the health professionals as well as the patient. There are some clients that will start just in the day hospital, so they may struggle with bulimia, binging and purging, and they wouldn't start in the inpatient. There are occasionally some that have really severe symptoms of binging and purging that really need containment for their binging and purging symptoms. So they may stay in inpatient for perhaps a couple weeks and then transfer to day hospital. But primarily, those that struggle with binging and purging would start just specifically in the day hospital. Their stay six to eight weeks primarily. And then they too would go to the the relapse prevention as, as well. We have a non-dieting philosophy here, so we work with a a message that all foods can fit and all foods should be incorporated in moderation, and we do that. We provide balanced meals for our patients, oftentimes in the initial stages of normalizing eating, and for people who are intensive treatment, they are working to incorporate avoided foods, and so when they're doing that, they might have to work harder to incorporate those avoided foods initially. So in in intensive treatment, someone that can only have a piece of cake in a really disordered way might have to practice having that in a normal way. And so you might see more of that happening in the intensive phase of treatment just because they are trying to kind of normalize that into their lives. And we call this food exposure. The idea is that the more they kind of incorporate these foods, the, the more they're able to start to tear apart some of the the thoughts about the foods that maintain the eating disorder as well as start to reduce some of the anxiety that might come with eating those foods. So exposing yourself to things that cause anxiety during treatment is really important because that's how we get at the underlying cognitions and help people to kind of rewrite some of that stuff. We try as much as we can that the goals are patient-directed, that we try to certainly work with where clients are at and that If things don't go just so, we're certainly not going to end treatment. It's just, again, the team meeting together, meeting with the patient, trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong, how can we do things differently, take another approach. When it comes to treating someone with an eating disorder, all of our guests were unanimous. Familial and social support is crucial. Are there also therapies that center around the home? Do people do... Um, family-based therapy? Yes, that's a good point. Uh, The only therapy that's been proved effective in randomized trials are for young patients. So these are early adolescent individuals who develop anorexia, and family-based therapy has been proven to be effective for that group. It's not effective for older patients. And again, the goal there, because it's the families have control over those young people, right? So you involve the families in actually the monitoring of food and the eating. They become sort of secondary therapists. Like Dr. Kaplan mentioned, eating disorders are treated in various contexts depending on the severity of the disease. Another movement that our friends at Netic Spearhead is to increase public education surrounding eating disorders, and this includes education on media literacy. This got us thinking, now that social media is a part of most of our daily lives, what impact does it have on people with eating disorders? We headed out to the streets to see what you have to say. 
it's so much different now. Like, I'm not hip with the kids anymore. I really, like, it pains me to say it, but I'm not. When I was in high school, it was hard enough fitting in, and now kids these days, not only do you have to discover who you are, you have to build a brand and advertise that and hope that's accepted by your peers. You're throwing yourself out there, not just to your peers, to the world. And, you know, now you can quantify popularity, which that can't be easy at all. Like, it's not something I'm used to, because, again, I'm not hip with the kids anymore. But... <laughs> But, uh, no, it's a pressure I've come to appreciate. Right? You see a highlight reel when you look at Instagram and every time, or it's all social media, but I guess at the, this point it's Instagram. You just see what people want you to see, so um, you really have no idea what's actually going on behind the scenes. And I would say that our exposure to the influencers of social media also makes a big impact because a lot of them are very fit beautiful people and and that emphasizes how important that is and even to be successful in that sort of an industry you do have to sort of meet those standards to fit in like that so I'd say like your exposure is just even more so than it was before and even just like how much you can't really escape from school and your peers and maybe all the pressures that you're facing from them when you go home just because it's like all around you on social media and and honestly if you're not on social media it'll have social impacts and that sort of thing so there's really no way to like isolate yourself and be like no I'm not gonna like I'm just against it sort of thing because then you'll miss out on other things but sort of being able to mentally control how you interact with it and engage with it can be really difficult because it can become really all-consuming so it's apparent that the increased focus on social media today can influence our perception. Shauna, Candice, and Ari weigh in on how that can impact eating disorders. Social media is certainly a very powerful way to depict a life that perhaps isn't a realistic picture of life, but the idealized picture of life. And unfortunately, a lot of that time that's centered around the body and appearance. And so I think it's important to continue talking about how these images are altered and how it's not a realistic depiction of what the body looks like every single day. Yeah. In research, we see the term thinspiration quite a bit when we're thinking about social media. And this is the idea that individuals are striving to achieve this thin ideal that is defined by different cultures. And now we're seeing in social media this idea of fitspiration, which is starting to be studied more in research, which is essentially this idea of maintaining and achieving this thin and fit body, which is slightly different from before. It does show, I think, how social media can perpetuate these ideals that men and women are facing that are typically unrealistic and only apply to a very small percentage of the population. So it's really hard to disentangle and to know if somebody is experiencing like disordered eating or exercising in a way that is not as adaptive and not as healthy. It's really hard to tell that apart just based on a single picture on social media. So it can be really dangerous for someone who is struggling with an eating disorder to be on social media and see these images because it is perpetuating those ideas that can be quite central to the eating disorder. Especially in this last decade, because I always forget social media and its modern form came out in like 2007. Mm -hmm. So like in terms of like human evolution, it's come out in a very short period of time and had a lot of impact. And I think the psychology behind it and the science behind it is very much, I'm still waiting for like high end, high power, like replicable research on it. But what we have seen is that there is increased body dissatisfaction, generally speaking, in people who use social media more, especially Instagram as a visual 
social media platform because it there's theories behind it on like whether it's like that self-comparison you're making where like before maybe like 50 years ago or even actually like 20 years ago when Candace and I was like we're a kid we kind of had to worry about it in terms of like TV you'd compare or like right. magazines but it's a little bit harder because you can turn those things off mm-hmm. but when we have our phones with us all the time and Instagram is a quick thing that you're just scrolling down that body dissatisfaction and those negative self comparisons you end up making repeatedly can happen so much more often that neurologically you're firing that synapse you're like keep going keep going right. keep going keep going becomes a really easy pattern to kind of repeat over and over again mm-hmm. and it's why we see it as it shows up as a risk factor for eating disorders, um, body dissatisfaction as a whole. And then like we see the proliferation of diet culture on social media very often too, both in the form of what we see traditionally as laxatives and thin ideal bodies or muscular ideal bodies, but also in like the way sometimes exercise and fitness are sometimes that multi-billion dollar industry can sometimes make people feel like that's what they need to do to have their body look a certain way and can be really combined with dieting. Netic is in full support of joyful movement for people. We think physical activity is wonderful and every Canadian, every human should have equal access to participate and the opportunity to in their life to participate. But you should do physical activity when your body feels good and Mm -hmm. you are listening to your body and Mm -hmm. it's joyful and it's social and you're doing it with friends and not the rigorous kind that you're going through pain Mm -hmm. and your body's screaming at you because we're not all going to be elite athletes and we all don't need to maybe be doing the rigorous kind and we're we have to be i think as a field a lot more in conversation with our friends in diabetes prevention and obesity prevention and all that stuff too to have a unified public health messaging on this topic because we don't want now the public to get really weird misconceptions about like, well, like they're telling me to exercise and we're not doing enough. And like these people now are telling me it's too risky. We, I think we all think exercise is good. Like just like we all think is eating, eating is good, but we need to get on the same page to better educate Canadians. I think Consistent on like what messaging. that looks like. Right. right. Stop really, siloing. Yeah. I, and I really appreciate the emphasis on joyful movement with mm-hmm. the positive reinforcement of that. Yeah. And it can be enforcing in itself, too, because if a lot of people, if they begin some sort of exercise or an organized sport and they're going into it with the idea of like, oh, I want to do this so I lose weight, and then they don't see that physical marker mm-hmm. being met, a lot of the times the motivation to continue engaging goes down mm-hmm. versus if you go into it as, oh, like, oh, this is a fun activity I'm going to do with friends. Much more sustainable. There, it's more sustainable. There's exactly. motivation to continue returning. And it's something that people actually bring enjoyment out of. And then any cardiovascular benefits or any of that is really just like a side effect mm-hmm. of the fun that they're having. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And do you see the those misconceptions kind of moving in terms of with more awareness and more education? we're seeing a lot more understanding. Yeah, like I'm I'm like waving on that only because I I think we at Netic very much don't want to like be a patting ourselves on the back kind of organization. We try and we very much try to believe optimistically that with outreach and education work, with evidence-based prevention in schools and in community settings and in our physical activity centers, et cetera, that we can start to shift the conversation. And I think this decade has seen some headway, as we've seen broadly with mental health, but also with eating disorders. But I think there's still so much left to do and so many communities who are way more underserved that I don't want any kind of patting on the back to make us think that we're there yet. Mm -hmm. Because I think we still have a long way to go. And I'd rather everyone in the field or people listening know that they can play a part 
in having this conversation change. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so just going off of that, mm-hmm. what exactly is Netic and what kind of populations do you serve and what kind of resources do you guys provide? Yeah, so we very much try to be the bridge almost between community and care. So we would like to provide information, education, referrals, and support. We do that to clients experiencing eating disorders um, or loved ones who are concerned about someone if they call our national toll-free helpline or go online at www.netic.ca and go to our online chat service. Those are things that are free nationwide. You just need an internet connection or a phone. And we're going to be posting that in the, the information surrounding the release of this uh, particular episode. So listeners, awesome. you can check that out. Right. And there are trained support workers and wonderful humans like Candice who are on the other end of that, helping people with a support conversation if they're really in it helping with that system navigation piece because unfortunately we do have a really fragmented system of care across Canada, across Ontario. Mm -hmm. Work is being done to unify that, but to a client who's in it or a family member who's trying to help, that can be really hard. So our support workers are there to help with that. And then the other big component that we do is our outreach and education piece, which can involve our biannual conference. It involves our workshops in schools, in community settings, and we're working with youth with healthcare professionals who unfortunately haven't maybe received the due training to be as eating disorder informed as they could be Mm -hmm. Um, and also the loved ones and caregivers who are looking to support folks that's mainly based in the gta right now but i've connected with folks across the province of ontario to kind of do more on that on a provincial level and hopefully inform things like eating disorders awareness week which happens at first week of february first to seventh every year that's national with other eating disorder organizations to really do public health education on the topic fantastic and both of you now have mentioned the workshops that happen through netic Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you can describe a little bit about what they look like for sure so we definitely it might look different depending on which audience we're kind of gearing towards. So we, we try to tailor. Yeah, <laughs> so we have our workshops. Actually, we're wrapping up camps, which we do in the summer. So um, we go into kind of in the Toronto area, the camps, and do body pride mm-hmm. with the kids who are there. So focusing on like activities that foster self-esteem, media literacy, and things like that. Mm-hmm. We also, I quite often, I'm the one going into high schools and really challenging kids to think critically about what we see in the media and like how does advertising work and what about photoshop and what are the resources available and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, but we also do a lot of work with educators we have beyond images which is a plug-in turnkey curriculum for grades four to eight um, Mm -hmm. that any teacher can access through the netic website that really tries to build in that piece that's missing in our curriculums about body image, media literacy, and things like that. So we also do a lot of work with educators about how to create like a more culturally sensitive classroom where food isn't necessarily seen as good and bad and like all of that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, so more of like a sensitivity sort of training. We were blown away by the amazing outreach work done at Netic. But as Ari said, it's important not to pat ourselves on the back. Eating disorders are still a poorly understood and a poorly treated group of conditions. Despite dissemination of resources like those that Netic provide, eating disorders can still be hard to recognize, even for physicians. Because you've been in this field for a long time, is there a change in the way that we are educating physicians about eating disorders? Has there been either to the MD curriculum or in residency? Is there like changes in maybe the stigma associated with it or the way that physicians are sort of educated about these 
these yeah, I would say unfortunately not a significant change. Mm. So it's still undertaught in medical school. The recognition of eating disorders, probably anorexia nervosa is a little bit more easily recognized because you can just see somebody. It uh, doesn't mean that physicians know what to do with patients. Bulimia tends to be a secret illness. Physicians aren't going to find out somebody's bulimic unless they ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Most physicians are uncomfortable asking those questions. Binge eating disorder patients tend to be obese, so they come to physicians, but the physicians tend to focus on weight loss, which is what the patient's asking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, a, we have a challenge to enhance both professional and public education in the area of eating disorders. I think we're, we're behind in that. Candice and Ari also shared insights on what you can do if you think someone you know might be experiencing an eating disorder. What would you suggest we do if we notice that a family member or a friend is uh, going through something like this? For sure, and that's quite often a question that we get a lot of the times on helplines. We're always happy for folks to call in or chat in over our website and kind of guide them through that conversation because it can be really tricky. Generally, you want to come from a place of concern, like speaking to the person is often best. Sometimes mm-hmm. people are like, this person is sick and we're going to hold an intervention. And we're like, oh, okay, let's hit the brakes a little bit there and like unpack some of this. Because yeah. an intervention, like, yes, that is a show that exists, but quite often that's not really effective right. um, for folks going through this. They're going through a lot to begin with and to be kind of targeted yeah. all at once right. by everybody they care about in their life that can actually cause a lot of defensiveness, which is already something that's really, really common among folks with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So generally, we encourage people to come from a place of concern and, you know, not necessarily pointing out things of like, oh, I've noticed you lost weight because that can cause a lot of emotional issues. But maybe like, I've seen you're more withdrawn lately, like you're not interacting with your friends the way that you used to, like things that are like you're noticing in their life, like that they're who they are is kind of something not directly related to exactly not directly related to the looks but maybe like I've been noticing you've been feeling down lately and Mm -hmm. you're not seeming yourself and things like that and kind of gently guiding them to what they're comfortable with because somebody Mm -hmm. also too a lot of the times if you're a friend or somebody who's really well-meaning that person might already be in treatment and they're just not open about it so that they could already have their support systems and their family or anything like that and just not want to be out to the whole world about it and there is a certain level of privacy and autonomy that we have to respect but generally being kind of encouraging and letting them drive how they see this moving forward because a lot of the times we go into a well-meaning thinking like oh I want to take you to help but like help may look different for somebody for somebody that might be seeking like hospital-based treatment and for somebody else it might be seeing a therapist once a week or like there's different ways that people might want to approach recovery or that might be appropriate for them given mm-hmm. their life mm-hmm. context. And it's why that being patient is so important. And I can understand how hard as someone who supported many people with mental health issues across the board, I think um, that patience can be really difficult because you are frustrated and you see this happening to your loved one. Mm-hmm. But if you don't come from this place of, pa- of patience, then maybe you're triggering that defensiveness and only outing yourself as a not safe person to talk to mm-hmm. eventually. So if you come from a place of patience and you're like, I'm noticing these things, like this is how I'm here for you. This, these are some potential options, almost like if you're fishing, you're casting lots of bait. 
Mm. And but like it's up to the fish to take the bait. Mm-hmm. And that's like what Candace is talking about, where like mm. they're the fish and they will take the bait and it'll be there. But always making sure that that bait's there and remembering that a person is more than their eating disorder too. Right. So you can still try your best to do things with your loved one that they they do love if they loved art making or they loved movies or they they loved playing with their friends or they like going outside for walks. Those are all things you can still try to incorporate and do with your loved one, Absolutely. even while they're experiencing some concerns in their life. And ambivalence toward treatment is very very normal, especially among this particular population and just because somebody isn't ready right now that doesn't mean they're not going to be ready a few days from now weeks months from now like the whole stages of change um and really Mm. we want to be able to capitalize when that person is ready and willing we're there to help with the resources in whatever way they feel comfortable we need people like our guests to advocate for attention and ultimately research surrounding eating disorders Dr. Kaplan and Shauna both weighed in on their research and what they see as future questions to tackle in the field. In particular, in the anorexia nervosa community, researchers around the world have banded together to answer the question, what are the genes contributing to this disease? The international collaboration is the Psychiatric Consortium, Genetics Consortium for Anorexia Nervosa. So that's a group of investigators across the world We're interested in the genetics of anorexia, and the main goal is to collect enough DNA to be able to do whole genome-wide association studies, and to do that properly, you need huge numbers of cases. So just to give you... When you say huge numbers, what are the numbers? Yes, so to give you an example, the Consortium for Schizophrenia is now over 100,000. Wow. DNA samples, and it's really bearing fruit now. And it has to do with the statistics of a GWASH because there's so many measures and calculations being done that you have to have large numbers to correct for false findings. And so we're, we're not there yet. The bipolar consortiums, I, th- I believe, are on 60,000. So we're now about 20,000, 25,000. But Which we're getting there. Feed, yes, yeah. and we're still collecting. And so what is your sort of current research looking at? So you mentioned you have a couple of clinical trials that you're trying to... Yes, so we've just finished a number of studies. We did a large drug study, and uh, it's very hard to do drug studies on people with anorexia. They're not that compliant, and you know, especially a drug where they could gain weight, they tend to drop out of those studies. But we really focused a lot on compliance in this study. And we were successful in recruiting and involving over 150 subjects in five sites in North America. And so what was the, what was the study looking at? It was looking at the effectiveness of a drug called olanzapine. Yes. Now, olanzapine is drugs in psychiatry are very much dose dependent. They have different effects at different dosages. So at dosages used, higher doses, olanzapine is an antipsychotic and it used, is used to treat schizophrenia. At lower doses, though, it's not so much an antipsychotic as it is an anxiolytic, reduces anxiety. And we felt, because it works primarily through dopamine, a neurotransmitter dopamine, now dopamine regulates areas of dysfunction that we see in anorexia, mood for sure, activity. So the classic disorder of dopamine in activity is Parkinson's, where there's a loss of dopamine cells in the substantia nigra, a different part of the brain. Reward, so anorexic patients are anhedonic. They get no pleasure from the things that are typically human, in the human pleasurable food, sex. In fact, it's hard for uh, to create uh, 
a situation where an anorexic will take a drug like cocaine because they just don't get the same impact. Cocaine works and is so addicting because it releases dopamine in the brain. Mm -hmm. And dopamine has a role to play in that too. So because of all that, it seems to be involved in the core symptoms of anorexia nervosa. You know, the weight loss and the restriction of calories are a result of those dysfunctions. And you did see an effect in we a... We saw, a, we in, in a subgroup, not all subjects, a subgroup seemed to have a therapeutic response by allowing themselves to gain weight without completely getting so upset that they dropped out. Yeah. So for them, it was a therapeutic weight gain. They described less of a drive to exercise, you know, typically people with anorexia are driven to exercise. Uh, they describe much less anxiety. Uh, they described less feeling of body image, being large mm -hmm. and being bloated. And they actually talked about enjoying meals, mm -hmm. right? Because for most anorexics, meals are aversive. Yeah. They don't get pleasure from having a steak dinner. And you said the response was in a subset, but in an area where there are virtually no treatments. Um, it's that's significant. It's, a, it's yes. a significant contribution. Yeah. The, the other remarkable finding in that study is if you gave that drug to other patients, uh, even normal people, healthy people, you would get changes in blood glucose. It can induce a type 2 diabetic state in oh, people. Okay. You get increase in lipids and cholesterol. We didn't find any of that in the anorexic subjects. Their, their lipids, cholesterol, and blood glucose didn't change. And when I've talked to people who, let's say, work with those, you know, people have schizophrenia, that they found, they saw that as quite remarkable. Yeah. There's something in the brains of anorexics that make them somewhat impervious to these kinds of negative side effects if you can get a positive effect. If you're interested in learning more about this study, Dr. Kaplan and his group recently published their findings in the American Journal of Psychiatry. We'll link the article in the show notes. What do you see as sort of the major questions in the field right now? What are people really trying to tackle with all the new technologies that you mentioned? Yeah, so that, I mean, the key is taking the genetic findings and translating that into better treatments. So we're now, we now have identified an at least eight genes that contribute risk to anorexia nervosa. So what are we going to do with that information? Yeah. Can we somehow either get pharma interested in drug development? Because we don't develop drugs. That's not yeah. what we can do. And olanzapine, as you said, is already FDA approved. That we're just repurposing yeah. it for another disorder. Yeah. It's approved for schizophrenia, other disorders. So th that's the challenge. What, what can we do? Can we make those genetic findings have an impact on the actual disorder? And the genetic findings, are they genes that make sense? Yes. So they're, they're genes that are involved in metabolism primarily. So we wouldn't have necessarily predicted that. We had been focusing previously on genes that regulate hunger, appetite, impulsivity, mood. These are different genes on a different chromosome. We asked Shauna the same question. What big questions may be a focus in the future of eating disorder research? She shared what she's researching now and what she's looking forward to exploring. My first area of research wanted to look at, are there different personality traits that are more commonly linked with uh, eating disorders compared to other traits? And just so that we can understand, is there a way to then use these traits to tailor treatment? That's the ultimate goal, not quite there yet, but of course that's the ultimate goal. And from there, I also wanted to see there's also emotional experiences that can be often precipitating factors to an eating disorder symptom. And so wanting to understand, are there specific emotional experiences that are 
more commonly associated, say, with eating disorder symptoms compared to others. So we know how to tailor treatment. We know what specific traits and emotions to be looking at. Eating disorders are not just about food. As we have heard, there are many other factors involved. It is a mental illness that can chronically affect a person's life and the people around them. However, there are resources available such as Netic. Tracy and Holly also have some words of encouragement. Sometimes people think of eating disorders as an acute disease that can be treated and cured. In some cases, some people come for treatment once and can walk away and not really have to deal with their eating disorder in a, in a big way for the majority of their lives. But that's, I would say that's the minority. And so we see, we certainly see a lot of people who are dealing with an eating disorder as a bit of a, a chronic disease, looking at how to, how to live with an eating disorder. You know, many, many people come to treatment more than once. So we always talk about recovery as a bit of a journey. And so someone, depending on their life stage, who's supporting them, the environment that they're in, their motivation to change, their readiness to change. They might come in and do a piece of work and then live their lives for a bit and realize they need to come back and do more work. So we do have kind of, you know, an open door policy around who can come how many times. And we, we kind of appreciate that it is a bit of a journey and that people might come back to do another piece of work. So treatment is oftentimes just the first step in a, in a larger journey. And really the hard work for many people come when they've left treatment and they're integrating back into their, their normal life where many of their stressors might be and their, their environmental cues that might kind of trigger some of their old coping behaviors related to the eating disorder. It can be easily discouraging if sometimes treatment doesn't quote-unquote work the first time or doesn't feel like a fit for you. I think there's the door, like the idea that the door is always open, never to give up, and we've seen some individuals come into treatment and have one sort of dose of treatment and recover and move on with their lives, and then we've had experiences with individuals that have been sick for many years and then for whatever reason they are able to make that change and 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 stay well so I think the idea that yeah not to give up and it's a journey for sure. We learned a lot from our guests and we hope you did too. All of the resources mentioned in the episode are listed in the show notes. Hosting for this episode was done by Yagnesh Ladmore and Stephanie Nishi. Interviews by Melissa Galati, Amber Mullen and Swapna Myla Bathula. Alex Jacob is the audio engineer. Show notes and content creation by Sukiko Miata and photography by Nathan Chan and Mehran Karimzadeh. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Alan Kaplan, Tracy Burke, Holly Dickinson, Shauna Solomon Krakis, Candace Richardson, Ari Maharaj, and to all those who shared their thoughts for the Word on the Street segment. And thank you for listening. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Welcome to episode 64.